Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you so much, Rav Shmuley. And of course, you're one of our star musmachim from Yeshivat Chovei Torah. But I'm excited that I got to know you in Chicago because you have Chicago roots. Uh, and throughout a lot of your career, it's just been amazing to follow you and still follow you. You started an amazing group, Torah Chaim, that is a listserv with over 100 rabbis, men and women, Orthodox, that really deal with the difficult issues of the time. So. It is a great honor to be here, and uh, I know who else has been to Val the Valley Beit Midrash, and so I'm really uh, humbled and honored. Um, I also want to um, thank the rabbi, thank you, and this wonderful new shul, Tidchad Shu, beautiful, beautiful. Um, and I also want to, um, uh, people here are from all different parts of my life, but I do want to mention my uh, brother and sister-in-law, David and Mary. Uh, so it's wonderful to, see, to be here with you. Uh, and uh, an important mentor of mine and of our yeshiva, Chip Adelsberg, the uh, 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 executive director emeritus uh, of the Jim Joseph Foundation, who really shaped my five years at Yeshivat Chovavei Torah uh, and will shape the future of rabbinic education and uh, many, many other institutions. So it's uh, humbling to be here to talk about these issues. Um, I hope that we have a lot of pushback and discussion on these. And I hope that there's at least one issue here that uh, each of you will disagree with me on or will have further insights. Uh, and so I really look forward to that. So we have an hour and a half till 8.30 and um, I will speak for around 50 minutes, ideally if I could do five minutes on each of these 10 challenges. Uh, and um, I'm probably gonna also talk about why one challenge is not in here. And that you'll also take me to task if there are challenges that I've not put in here. Um, and then I really wanna have a conversation, a, a real discussion about these issues. So let me start. I don't know if they're in any particular order. I think they're all very, very important. But I do know that on issue number one, what does it mean to be Jewish? I do find it intermingling with uh, many of the issues that I deal with as an Orthodox rabbi, Rav Shmuley deals with. It comes up with issues of conversion. It comes up with issues of patrilineal descent, where one movement would say someone is Jewish. And the question is, for let's say an Orthodox Jew does not accept patrilineal descent, but then you meet someone who is so Jewish and so involved in the Jewish community and such a leader and inspiration, 
I think we're living in an era that we have to sometimes redefine for ourselves, and not just for Orthodox, but everyone, what does it mean to be Jewish? Is it a matter of pride? Is it a matter of faith? Many Jews, let's say they're even observant, and they are distanced from Israel. What do we do about that? Are they in the Jewish community or not? Or what about people that are intermarried, that are interfaith couples, and uh, whether it's the husband or the wife that is schlepping the non-Jewish spouse, that is schlepping the kids to Hebrew school, that is insisting that the Jewish partner keep some of their Judaism. Are they, what is their identity? How do we look at them? Do we say they're totally outside the Jewish community? Or are they Jewish as well in a certain way? Um, Rav Soloveitchik, the great uh, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, I studied mainly with his brother, Rav Aaron Soloveitchik, who was in Chicago in the uh, 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, but his uh, Rav Yosef Dov Soloveitchik said there are two types of covenants of, uh, that a Jew has. Um, one is um, just the fact that you're Jewish, and the other one is that you're part of the Jewish destiny, that you're part, you're along for the ride where the Jews are going, whether it's issues of Israel, whether it's issues of leading the way, and we'll get to this later, in ethics or morality, whether it's the conscience of a country, of a land, of a people that we have played many times, it's that you're part of that destiny. And in fact, when someone converts, the most important question is not the mitzvot, the commandments, do you care about the commandments, anything like that, that's, that's mentioned, but are you, are you with us? Are you part of the destiny of the Jewish people? And the truth is there are many people that might not classically be defined as Jewish who are very much part of our destiny, who go along with us. Now, I don't want to push the envelope too much here, but it's interesting that if, you, if anyone has been to a Kufi, Christians United for Israel, a Kufi convention, and they're dancing the Hora and Hava Nagila uh, and talking about Israel, um, it's fascinating. They are part of, in some ways, the destiny, perhaps, of the Jewish people, and I'd love to talk about this afterwards, uh, but these things get in a beautiful way, confusing, in a sometimes you could be sad about it, like are these committed Jews, or is anyone committed here? Does anyone care about Judaism sufficiently to change their lives? On the other hand, it's very refreshing that there are so many that are proud of being Jewish, that are partners with Jews, that are partners in this destiny. So this is, a, I think, a big question that we really have to deal with, and then we have to see if we can survive. What kind of identity do you need to be a Jew to really continue to have continuity from generation to generation? So that's one question. I want to go into what I think maybe is, is right now, well, right now one of the big issues is Israel and, and American Jews and how do we define our relationship with Israel. And actually, I want to say something a little bit maybe contrarian. Um, so uh, 
you go to a Kufi convention, the Christians love Netanyahu. They can't get enough of Prime Minister Netanyahu. He's their hero. For American Jews, uh, a little problematic, especially now, and, and I'm sure many, if not all of you, are following the issues with the Kotel. Will uh, non-Orthodox Jews be allowed to have their services at the Kotel? And it wasn't even at the Kotel. There was a compromise done at the southern wall, the so southwestern wall, Robinson's Arch, and then that was violated. And, and um, I think the bottom line for us, and this is why it's such a challenge, is that in some ways Israel doesn't feel it needs American Jews the way it used to. And the power relationship, the relationship is different. Um, Israel has a $340 billion gross domestic product, a GDP of $340 billion. So um, any money that we give to Israel is welcomed and Hadassah, love, everyone needs it. Magen David Adom, Yeshivot, all the causes that we give for are so important. But it's, it's a world power. Um, just today I read in Haaretz that the uh, Indian army is going to be training with Israel. And someone gave me an article uh, from years ago where the Indian Army was working with Nasser in 1967 to uh, develop a new jet fighter with Egypt against Israel. So how things have changed, the relationship that Israel has with India and with China uh, and, and with Christians, um, with this Christian right, uh, I actually met um, someone, uh, um, Sandy um, Eisenstadt uh, passed away. He had been very active in APAC. And one of his areas was being involved with someone to turn around Jesse Helms. So if you remember, Jesse Helms in the 1980s was a senator who was very anti-Israel. Um, he wanted to break off relations with Israel over the Lebanon war in the early 80s. Uh, and then they turned him around, and that was really, you could really see the shift in Christian friends for Israel. So you have these tens of millions of Christians that are, Netanyahu feels he has them. You have, uh, and maybe you have the Orthodox Jews that'll be behind Netanyahu, whatever he says. Um, he's not maybe right-wing enough for, for many of them. It doesn't seem like Israel feels they absolutely need us and they absolutely have to come to us and they absolutely need the relationship that, that with American Jewry. And so now we're in a position, in a sense, we American Jews need a relationship with Israel for ourselves, for our own identity, for our own dreams. And it needs to be an Israel that we love. It needs to be a Kotel that we can love. It needs to be a Jerusalem that speaks to us. And so the challenge for American Jewry now is, is it's not going to come easy. It's going to be much harder. And maybe, and this is what I think is, is maybe it's, it's contrary, maybe Netanyahu by you know, not honoring this deal and really uh, you know, abandoning American Jews in some way, maybe that will wake us up and will show us deep down how much we care for Israel. We have birthright. Our kids are going to Israel. They're connecting with Israel. The Pew study shows that not everyone supports Israel the way they used to politically, but as many Jews in America feel connected to Israel as 10, 20 years ago. 
So we still have this connection, but the challenge for us as Jews is now we have to motivate ourselves as American Jews to discover the kind of Israel we want, the Zionism we want, what does it mean for us? Um, tonight is, uh, tonight's a, the Yortzeit um, of Yitzhak Rabin, uh, and uh, it's uh, something to, to think about, really, uh, that, um, you know, what is, what does Israel mean for us? What are, how is that part of the Jewish dream? We can't rely anymore on Israel doing that for us. They used to do it because they needed our money. They still want our money and they still love us, I'm sure. But now we have to rely on that for ourselves. So the, um, and please, again, I'd like to have a good conversation about this. Um, the third issue, um, and this is something I've, I've spoken to Rav Shmuley about, and thank God we have someone like uh, Rav Shmuley, is, you know, is Judaism la leading or lagging morally? You know, it used to be, you read the prophets, and it's funny, we, um, there's a, at the end of every day's service, in the morning, there's the song of the day, um, and it's a bit of Psalms, it's a chapter of Psalms. Uh, and on Tuesdays, uh, it was, it's all about um, care for the poor and judge the poor fairly, judge the widow fairly, be careful. Uh, and I remarked like, oh, this, this, this guy is a liberal, you know, whatever, you know, uh, let's talk about, I don't know, real things. And no, our tradition is caring for the weak. And I'm, I'm politically, I'm a libertarian, but I still believe in social justice. And I still believe we have to set up a society that cares for people. And are we doing that as Jews? You look around at the major organizations that are caring for those that are victims uh, because they're weaker and that are caring about, okay, even our earth or immigration, global warming, even genocides. Who is really speaking up? Um, and sometimes this clashes a little bit with the previous point. Um, Shmuley and I have signed, we're trying to nudge Israel to make sure that no arms are sold from Israel to Myanmar uh, because there's a genocide that's about to happen there. There's ethnic cleansing going on already. Um, and you know, we, America does not sell arms. No Western nation sells arms. Israel has got to be the moral leader, and we've had that in the past, and we still have it. Israel is amazingly inspiring. Is, are American Jews inspiring? You know, are our organizations the ones that the world looks to for inspiration um, in, in ethics, in the field of pushing the world morally? You know, um, if you look through the, the, the Torah, is a big advance over Hammurabi's laws. Hammurabi's laws, which were around the same time as the Torah, around 3,500 years ago. Uh, you know, if, if a, um, someone pokes out your eye, you can you kill their kid. You know, you can, you, it, it didn't have this respect for human life that our Torah has. So the Torah was way ahead of its time. And the Talmud is ahead of it, was ahead of its time uh, in versus Roman law and Greek law. Um, so it's amazing. We've had leadership like that. Do we have that now? And I, I worry that um, 
we've maybe turned inward and we have a lot of issues that we have to fight against for Israel, against anti-Semitism, for education, all these other issues that we'll, we'll come to, uh, and preserving Judaism, preserving our identity, have we forgotten about the moral leadership we're supposed to provide for the world? And, you know, I speak in particular that resonates with me as an Orthodox Jew because I think Reform Jews and conservatives are a little bit, they're more. But I want to make sure it's Judaism. When people think about these big issues, do they think about, uh, yes, the Jews are really out there, and as we were, again, with Hyas and in other areas. Um, and like an ancillary, we're going to spend a lot of time on this, but an ancillary issue are, you know, um, are we just, is Judaism just politics? And so either you're a liberal Jew, and so you're just following liberal politics. So Norman Podhoretz uh, writes about that, uh, why are Jews liberals? Because he's a neoconservative. So you could write a book about him, why are Jews neoconservatives? Uh, and um, there are, you know, uh, when we choose a different party, when we choose a political outlook, um, are we doing it for Jewish reasons? Are we doing it just because that's kind of the culture, that's the group that those are the people we're part of? And I think that this comes to, and I know Rav Shmuley emphasizes this a lot, um, are we going back to the Torah? Are we going back to our tradition and saying, let's challenge ourselves. Is this what our tradition is really about? Wherever we are on the political spectrum, are we injecting it enough with Jewish, true Jewish sources? And are we open that if those sources push us in a direction that we're not used to politically, are we open to change? Because that's what the Torah is supposed to do. That's what our, our tradition is supposed to do. It's supposed to wake us up and allow us to change. And sometimes I think we just get um, stuck in a sort of a political outlook and we can't get out of it. And it's, again, it's different. Um, you know, uh, in the Orthodox world, in the Reform world, the conservative world, but there are, you know, Orthodox Jews that are very liberal and Orthodox Jews that are very conservative. Are we making sure that that's a Jewish value um, rather than just a, a value um, for, that we get from the world around us? And I'm very open to being, we should be influenced by the world around us. We should study the thinking and the philosophy of the world around us, but we should, do that from the prism of Judaism. And are we doing that? And that takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of study to, to make that happen. The fifth point is actually I feel that the Jewish world is doing pretty well on this issue of uh, tolerance to acceptance in the LGBTQ world. Um, and I see that in the Orthodox community that there are synagogues that have same-sex couples there. There is movement here. I mean, the conservative movement has moved further than the Orthodox movement. The reform movement has been welcoming to um, LGBTQ for a long time. Um, but the challenge really is to, and I don't know if ever people are dealing with it, is to look at those verses that seem to tell us that a certain way of life is not good, or look at certain halachot laws, or look at certain the way we've been doing things, and are we going from just a position of tolerance, like saying, okay, you know, it's not, but it's okay, they're people, to really re-understanding our world. 
and this, I put this in LGBTQ, but there's another, like, different kinds of families. Um, single mothers by choice. Uh, in my shul in Chicago, uh, where I was just till five years ago, um, it was very exciting that there were certain uh, women who actually they wanted to get married, but they were not finding a Jewish husband that they wanted, uh, and they went ahead and had a baby. And uh, it's very difficult, but our, 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 our community is embracing that kind of a family um, and different kinds of families. And uh, are we, again, are we looking at our Jewish sources for support for that. And I would say that really, when I talk about, um, and for years I've talked to LGBTQ, same-sex marriage, I say, well, we have one verse that says, lo tov hayot adam levado, in Breshit. It's not good for a human being to be alone. And that's before Adam and, and Eve get married. The next thing that God does, after God says it's not good for human being, Adam, to be alone, is he tries to, God, God tries to fix Adam up with all the animals. It didn't work. So, uh, and then eventually, thank God, it worked with Eve. But the main thing there is that unless a person really wants to live alone, God bless them, ideally, we should, the Torah wants people to find partnership. And then later on, you have other verses that seem to challenge uh, certain relations in different ways, and the rabbis talk about it. But are we really uh, balancing this? Now, I want to throw in one other thing in this issue, in issue number five, and that is um, the bi a non-binary world. So let's say in an orthodox synagogue, uh, you have a men's section and a women's section. Uh, and liberal orthodox synagogues, actually many orthodox synagogues are, are fine with transgender. If someone has... Uh, uh, is now a woman and was a man. She's a woman. She could sit on the women's side. I've, there have been young Israels, which are kind of a right-wing Orthodox group, and they said, fine, on the women's side, this is a person, she's a woman, she sits on the women's side. You don't have to go by the birth certificate. Uh, and then it gets a little bit harder because there are people that maybe look like a man, but they say, I am a woman, so where should they sit? And then it gets harder um, that... Someone might say, I don't consider myself a man or a woman, non-binary, so where should they sit in an Orthodox synagogue? So I was talking to my friend, Rabbi Ethan Tucker, um, is a great uh, leader and thinker, uh, sort of in the halachic egalitarian movement. He says, for us, it's no problem if men and women sit together, men and women can lead services. We don't ask people, I'm giving you this ali, are you a man or a woman? Everything is fine, so it's not really a challenge for him. But it is um, as liberal as uh, maybe some of the Orthodox Jews try to be, this is a big challenge. And I, I referenced here Tova Hartman. Um, there's a lot of discussion now about uh, that masculine and feminine, and I don't know if you've read um, Ilana Kershan's book uh, on uh, Dafyomi, if, um, if um, all the words, I forgot what it's called, but it's a beautiful book. She did one page of Talmud a day for seven and a half years. Uh, and it was, you know, there are mostly men do that, but there are women that are learning that. And she says she identifies with the rabbis of the Talmud. She knows that they, are, they were male, but sometimes masculine and feminine, it's not just which gender you are, it's a certain type of personality, it's a certain type of outlook. 
So there's a lot of interesting thinking um, that um, Tova Hartman and other feminists are doing, but it's a big challenge. I mean, I don't know if it's a challenge to you. It's a big challenge to go from a pretty simple world to a non-binary world. Um, number six, I think, is, is sort of obvious, but it's challenging, inclusion with people with disabilities in our synagogues. You know, it was just um, this Shabbat, uh, there was a class being given in Shabbat afternoon, and there was a kid who was developmentally disabled who was shouting a little bit. And uh, no one said anything. People turned around, but no one said, but eventually the father took him out, and I feel bad, like, uh, that, um, should I have said something, like, don't take him, and he's welcome here, it's a little bit of shouting. There was someone in my shul in Chicago, at Anshay Shalom, who had Tourette's, uh, and, which, which, you know, you uncontrollably shout sometimes, and uh, someone in the synagogue afterwards said, no, they shouldn't be there. So, as much as we kind of know intuitively that inclusion is so important, people with learning disabilities, uh, all sorts of disabilities, um, it's a challenge. It's a financial challenge. Um, and, and thank God there's a great school in New York, I know the Sheffa School, that has opened for kids with reading disabilities and in Chicago. So this one, I think, number six, I don't think we're gonna argue about, but Rav Aaron Soloveitchik used to say you should prioritize people with disabilities over the regular folks, the normative folks. And that's a real question. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to uh, have our services, you know, we have such a pristine services sometimes. Are we willing to make sure that people with disabilities feel welcome? So it's something I think we believe in, but are we really doing it? Now, number seven. Um, intermarriage, uh, this is getting a lot of play now. It's, the forward has a piece on it. And um, I, um, and the conservative movement is struggling with it because it's 70% of Jews uh, intermarry out, outside of New York City, at least. So, uh, and outside of orthodoxy. But in orthodoxy, there are many Jews that find someone they love uh, and who's not Jewish. And then usually they can get them converted, but sometimes they're very honest and they say like, you know, I love you and I even love your religion, but I'm not, um, I don't want to convert. I don't believe in God. Uh, and so um, it's a real challenge uh, to how do you welcome people? And we've talked about inclusion. How do you welcome people? How do you um, even show how much respect you have? Because many times they're committed to a Jewish family. They're raising Jewish kids or, or kids, you know, in a beautiful way with one spouse or one that is not Jewish. So how do you um, celebrate sometimes these families with maintaining if you think intermarriage is not the norm or should not be the norm? Uh, and it's so interesting that I, I spoke to some conservative leaders who are very proud of a strong statement that they made against intermarriage, that we don't accept intermarriage and we won't do intermarriages. And then I read a critique of that, like, oh, you guys are so tolerant of intermarriage, you say you'll welcome them, and you know, this and that. And you know, so um, it's a very tender subject. I actually did, we had two, I did uh, a few years ago a conference in New York, just 20 rabbi, Orthodox rabbis on intermarriage uh, with Kerry Olitsky, and that was much more 
can we make orthodoxy more welcoming to intermarried couples? Um, can you, like, uh, you know, celebrate their anniversary? Uh, can they be part of the list, you know, if you have an anniversary kiddish, can they be part of it? Uh, and, and then someone else was, we had to do another conference because that one was sort of like, no, conversion, just conversion's the way, and let's not talk about accepting intermarriage. So it's a big issue. Um, and I think the good side of it, this is the one issue, in, uh, this is number seven, 7A or B, which I don't have here, is anti-Semitism. And this we could talk about. I don't think it's such a fear. Everyone wants to marry Jews in America. Jews are marrying, and you know, I've gotten stopped by the police, and they said, I'm a rabbi. Oh, yeah, my sister's married to a Jew, and all that. So there definitely is anti-Semitism in America. But, you know, intermarriage is, is great fighting that, and people are just more accepting of that. And uh, so um, I think that, um, I mentioned here that Avraham, on the one hand, Sarah in this week's Parsha says, get rid of Ishmael and get rid of that uh, you know, Hagar, the, the maid, the, the Egyptian maid that you married. I don't want them with Isaac. Um, and she sends them out. And, and on the other hand, and it's not emphasized so much, Abraham has some very close friends, non-Jewish, I mean, no one was actually Jewish then, but you know, non-Hebrew friends, and he lives with them, and they told him to have his bris. They supported him when everyone else was saying, I know God tells you to slice off part of your, you know, one of your organs, you know, don't do it. Not a good idea. Don't do it. And these people said, if God tells you to do it, you got to do it. We're not doing it, but if God tells you to do it, you should do it. So, um, you know, so our relations with uh, Gentiles are, are very different. And, um, and it, this is a struggle, intermarriage. I'm just, I'm just put that out as a challenge. Um, so number eight, you know, I'm going to come back to number eight, because I think that's a real, maybe the biggest challenge. Number nine, uh, you know, are our synagogues, are we, is it, Passionate Judaism, can you take your kids, your teens, to Judaism that's exciting? I mean, even in the day schools, is, are the services exciting or meaningful? Um, you know, and what do we do about it if they're not? And sometimes I say, like, my Reformed friends, like, they have, you know, a clean slate. They can take out parts of the services. They can bring in instruments. They can have a great time. They should be having the most amazing services, and I'm sure many times they do. But uh, um, but is it is Judaism really exciting? I mean, we love it, you know. And we but we're good with like, I mean, I'm a baby boomer. Yeah, you give me a little bit of uh, uh, herring at the kiddish and chalant and uh, scotch, you know, and all that. You know, I'm happy. But is that enough? Are we really being uh, passionate and? The, what I find in number nine is this uh, bourgeoisization, bourgeoisization of Judaism. Um, Jay Lefkowitz wrote this article in Commentary Magazine about social orthodoxy. And he was praising it, but there are a lot of people that they just do it, they go through the motions. It's nice, it's their friends. Synagogue is a place for their friends. They meet their friends there, they can schmooze, they can talk. And 
Sab the Sabbath is like that, Shabbat is like that, the holidays. Um, but they're not doing it because they're really passionate about it. They're not doing it, they even believe that God wants them to do that or whatever. Um, they're just going through the motions. And there are many, many Jews like that. Um, in, in, I know in orthodoxy that are social orthodox. And I worry, I don't know if that's something you can pass down because yeah, it's a nice thing, but the kids have other priorities and have other nice things and compelling things. Are we creating, are we living a Judaism that's really compelling? Um, um, and number, number 10, you know, uh, are we united? I think, you know, I think we're more united than we think. Um, I think we yell at each other and we, um, you know, as long, I think, look, I think this is a, an amazing demonstration that people are coming here from all different backgrounds. So I think that potential is there. I guess I, what I would say, and I find this in the Orthodox community a lot, people always talk about um, a chasm and we're, we're separating and we're, we're gonna be two Judaisms and this and that, and that is kind of scary. So like, I think, I don't think we're, I think we wanna be together and I think we have a lot you know, that we share, um, but I think that's sort of a fear that we have to contend with. Now, let me go back to eight. And eight, I am worried. I am very worried. Um, a friend of, of mine made Aliyah, and he bemoans, it's very funny, in his, in his blog, he's been blogging about his experiences. So he bemoans that he, oh, he wants to have uh, candy corn this time of year, and he wants to have uh, pumpkin-y kind of stuff, and I guess Dunkin' Donuts has pumpkin donuts. And all he gets in Israel is sufganiyot, jelly donut. Now from after Russia, after Sukkot through Hanukkah, it's all jelly donuts. And um, it's funny that he's bemoaning it, but I think that's a powerful thing. When you live in a Jewish majority culture, you don't have to be religious. You don't have to be into it at all. You have to believe in God. You don't even like Judaism, but you're stuck with sufganiyot. And then Pesach time, it's going to be all matzah. And, and yes, you can get your bread if you sneak somewhere and go somewhere. But, you know, this is something that we don't necessarily have in America. Now, uh, you know, thank God, you know, when I was, it was all Christmas when in the 60s and 70s, and now it's always Happy Hanukkah. We'll see what happens now, but it's always uh, happy, you know, it's Happy Hanukkah also, and so it's a little bit, but we're not surrounded with this Jewish environment. So I worry is our Judaism strong enough to really survive in a potent way uh, when we're not living in a Jewish environment? So when we were in Europe and or in Iran and everyone hated us and wouldn't marry us and forced us to be Jews, and by the way, I think I mentioned this, that, uh, yeah, that um, in Iran, the, the Jews have to close their stores on Shabbat. They're even stricter than the chief rabbi in Israel. They make the Jews close their stores on Shabbat. Um, so in that culture, when no one was marrying us and no one liked us and everyone hated, it was anti-Semitic and we were forced, we had no choice. You didn't have to believe in Judaism, you were stuck doing Judaism, and you pass it down to your kids, there was nothing else. In our life, where we are now, there are a lot of other things, and there aren't the sufganiyot, and the bonfires on Lagba Omer, and the Sukkot that you see, and all those other things that keep people thinking Jewish and feeling Jewish. So I worry, I mean, I'm, I'm so confident that 
you know, in the poll, the Pew studies say that people are proud of being Jewish. Children of intermarried couple, they're proud of their Jewishness. It might not be Jewish by religion, but they're proud of being Jewish. Uh, they're part, in some ways, the destiny of the Jewish people, maybe. And I don't know exactly what that is. But... Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. But, so I'm, I'm excited that we have the, what traditionally is called the pintalayid, the little bit of the soul of Jews is, is in all these kind of Jews, even whether they're halachic Jews or not halachic Jews, it's there, but is it going to be snuffed out? Is, it, is that enough? Is it really that enough to, to get us? Can we relight it, uh, relight those uh, tiny fires within everyone? So I, I don't want to end on sort of that sad note. I think it's actually we have an opportunity. We have the opportunity that, that all the polls show that, that American Jews are connected to Israel. American Jews are proud of their Judaism. Uh, American Jews feel there is a united sense where we're kind of together in some ways. It's an opportunity, but I hope that we don't, uh, we don't lose it. We have to redouble, I think, um, you know, redouble our efforts and face these issues uh, and, uh, and argue with each other more about these issues. But I think there's a lot of hope but I think these are some big challenges. So I'm going to stop talking. I want to hear some good, some pushback, some, I mean, you're welcome to say, great point, but. Uh, Thank you, Rabbi. We're going to go ahead and take questions. Great, great. Thank you. Well, we got done in 40 minutes. Good. Yeah, and if we've got any questions, let's uh, raise your hand and we'll go ahead and field them. Thank you, Rabbi. It was very interesting. Uh, you mentioned that you think that American Jewry still the statistics is that they are sort of committed to Israel. I am hearing that it's not the case. The younger the generation, the less committed they are to Israel. Particularly in looking at Israel not really accepting American Jewry mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the fact that they are not exactly in agreement with what's going politically in Israel, but they are really distancing themselves. Um, what do you foresee to be, you know, the next generation? Those of us who grew up before Israel was born and certainly supporting it all through the difficult times, now that Israel is doing financially better and all of that kind of stuff, we won't necessarily walk away, although we may not be happy, but the younger generation doesn't have the same commitment. Yeah, thank you. So I think that on the positive side, um, loving Israel now, I think birthright is making a difference. And I think that's why the, the studies um, have shown that it's remained steady. It might be that that's skewed a little bit because of Orthodox Jews. Orthodox Jews are now a larger percentage of the population, especially young Jews. Um, so that might be why it's skewed uh, towards Israel, why it stayed steady. Orthodox is going up, perhaps, um, as a percentage of the population, the American Jewish population. Um, I think that in some ways it's um, uh, to connect with Israel on a uh, sort of a social level 
and a cultural level might be easier now. People can do more programs in Israel. Um, so I wonder, until very recently, I don't think people have actually paid attention to the Kotel and to people, I mean young people, people that weren't that involved. Um, the ones who cared are the ones who care about Israel. Um, and other people didn't really care so much until very recently. Um, but I think now, uh, and so the, Israel could get away with it, Netanyahu can get away with it, and you'd still have that connection. I think now um, it's, it's more serious, but I'm hoping, and I think people are getting frustrated, but I'm hoping that maybe that drives them to say, I don't want to give up Israel. Israel means something to me. I'm bothered by not being able to daven at the Kotel, pray at the Kotel the way I normally pray. So I'm hoping that maybe this will stir the pot enough that there could be a positive reaction. Now, if they continue not to respond in Israel and the Rabbanut, then, you know, then we can have a little bit of an up and then it's going to be very frustrating. But I think there are more opportunities now to connect with Israel. And so I, I'm, that's why I'm a little bit hopeful. But I think that um, I don't know if it's going to have the depth of commitment, the younger generation to Israel, that your generation, that even my generation from Entebbe. So I don't remember the 67 war, but I remember Entebbe in 76. Uh, it won't have that depth, perhaps, but it will. Um, but as far as a breath, being able to visit Israel and seeing Israel, a lot more Jews are able to do it. Hundreds of thousands of, of kids are able to go there now that weren't able to go there a few years ago. Maybe another way to approach this is, is to um, make it more supportive or normative for people to say you can support Israel even if you don't support Bibi. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think Bibi's did a good job of saying you don't support me, you'll support Israel. And that may be something else that I think is undercutting the general support for Israel as opposed to the identity with a particular uh, a political um, section of Israel. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that, like, I love APAC. I go to APAC every year. They do great work with everybody, with rabbis, with lay leaders. Um, they treat rabbis very well. They're, I love them. They bring us, they fly us in. They're very nice. But um, they, you know, there's a certain line that you need to toe with them. I wish there'd be APAC for bad boys or, you know, APAC for people that, you know, are angry, for angry people, you know. And, and um, J Street, I think, is trying to do some of that, but there's sometimes marginalized J Street. So, yeah, I think the, the leadership, um, there's a lot of dogma in the leadership of, of the pro-Israel leadership. Uh, and um, I, I agree. I think we need to allow, I totally agree with you, we need to allow for people to express their anger and love and, and disagreement uh, with, with the government. Um, it's hard. APEC, this was very difficult, the Kotel issue for APAC, because a lot of their supporters were very angry. And I don't know, they, hopefully they're, they're, they're trying to work it out. But um, we need more room for people that disagree. We need more room for um, people even to the left of J Street uh, that can still feel we welcome them as part of the Jewish people. And I think that's a real challenge. It's easy to welcome sweet, nice people, even people on intermarried or whatever. You know, sometimes it's easy. But people that, that bother us because of their political positions, 
got to be willing to, to welcome them. I think that, that, is a, that is a challenge. Hi. Um, my question or my thought or my confusion is mainly with orthodoxy. Okay. Okay, so you've got reform that, you know, pretty much all on the same page. You've got conservative pretty much on the same page. Even in this room, you said we're all, all from different backgrounds, and I would probably assume that there are very few orthodox, if any, in this audience. Hmm. So, you know, liberal orthodoxy, that almost sounds like a, an oxymoron to me. Um, what's the difference between liberal orthodoxy and modern orthodoxy? <laughs> and it seems like the Great. biggest separation is within all the different orthodox sects, and, and it seems like reform conservative and maybe liberal orthodox are kind of all in more of an agreement than some of the other orthodox. And, and what distinguishes liberal orthodoxy between that and conservatism, other than just, you know, with, with conservative Judaism, women can read Torah and men and women sit together. Mm -hmm. So. Great. Good. That's a good question. No, that's, that's a great question. Um, actually, at Chove Torah, we have, uh, in our yeshiva, we have someone who grew up in the very right-wing Satmar Hasidic community, but he's modern Orthodox now. But we have another uh, rabbi who's from a Hasidic community who still teaches there and lives there and is a, an authority there in the Hasidic community. And he comes twice a week to the yeshiva to learn with our guys. And um, I kind of feel that a lot of orthodoxy is, is, is um, nostalgic for the way things used to be. And that the real um, centrist, right-wing orthodoxy is really trying to hold on to a world that not, is not changing. They want to really be in the world of, that they imagine Europe was like, uh, that, um, and they're trying to avoid ch making changes. Now, it's interesting because they're changed. Like, there never was a tradition of so many people just learning Torah and not working. Uh, and now they're kolels, and now, but there are thousands and thousands in America and in Israel, and that's a change. But in general, there is a fear of change. Um, and modern orthodoxy is supposed to say we're not afraid of changing. Um, we're open to things. Rav Soloveitchik was one of the thinkers. Even if you go back to Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch in Germany, we're open to the outside world. There's a lot of good things we can learn from the outside world. But not to be afraid of changing, of things becoming different. So some people are talking about, because it's sort of an anniversary, of Rav Soloveitchik starting to learn with women uh, and allow women to learn Talmud at Stern College, which is a, an orthodox institution. Uh, and not to be afraid, that's a change. Things are different than they were before. Women used to not learn formally, and now they do, but not to be afraid of that. That's what modern orthodoxy is supposed to be about. And it's a great dialectic. It's supposed to be the world is telling us one thing, and we think another thing in our tradition, and our, it seems that our Torah, or our Talmud, our law books are telling us one thing, and yet the world is telling us something different. 
how do we square those two? And, and that should be a healthy, exciting dialogue, um, but, um, uh, but a lot of the right-wing Orthodox are afraid of that, and I think they're afraid. Maybe it's post-Holocaust. They're afraid that it's all going to unravel. If you let people have smartphones, it's all going to unravel. Uh, if you let women do something, it's the slippery slope, and we, it's uncontainable. I, I just heard that a chief rabbi of, of, um, of England was telling someone that, you know, hold the line, hold the line, because we didn't hold the line here in England, and now women are, you know, dancing with the Torahs. So, uh, so the right-wing orthodoxy is more that. Modern orthodoxy is supposed to embrace this. Where, embrace this conflict, but it's not a conflict. It's a healthy way of growth. So some things we will say, you know, looking... So this is where I want to get to the difference between, I think, conservative and orthodox. Um, in the conservative and reform movement, sometimes it's we have to change the law, or this no, law is no longer relevant. Now, there's a whole discussion, um, and, and some of the... Joel Roth, Rabbi Joel Roth, one of the great conservative thinkers, he thinks that some laws are can't change. Some verses in the Torah are central, they can't. Other ones you can sort of play around with, you can change a little bit. But basically the orthodoxy, modern orthodoxy, liberal orthodoxy, some people, Rabbi Avi Weiss uses the term open orthodoxy, all those believe that we are not trying to change what's in the tradition. We're not coming up with something new. It's not invention, it's innovation. It's looking at the sources again with, in light of the outside world, in light of all these new feminist thinking, liberal thinking, humanist thinking, whatever it is, and seeing, wow, you know, we didn't understand this the right way or we never understood this. So, I mean, a great example is women learning. I mean, so many sources talk about how women, you're not allowed to teach your daughter Torah and all this stuff. And, and now they say, well, no, I guess it's okay. You know, I guess it was okay all along. Um, similarly, I think, with uh, women rabbis. Uh, you know, there was a think women can't, shouldn't be rabbis, the tradition. I don't know. Is there a really a tradition not to have women rabbis or... It just wasn't something that people thought of. In other words, there weren't that many women that applied to Yeshiva University 50 years ago. I want to be a rabbi. Um, there aren't even women that apply to uh, Chovei Torah. So we're all men in our yeshiva. There's Yeshiva Maharat that gives ordination to women, but we're um, all men. There haven't been women that have applied to Chovei Torah. So I don't even think it was a tradition that women shouldn't be rabbis. It's just that they never were. I, well, we're, this is my last year there, so I'll have to see. <laughs> but but uh, I, would, I would fight for it. I would, I would fight for it. But uh, I'm, I'm out. This is my last year, June. So you have to, my successor will, uh, will work on that. But um, I, so what I would argue is that there's never been a tradition not to have women as rabbis. The tradition was that the rabbi should be someone moral and ethical who can lead the community and teach the community, and thank God we're in a place now where that person could be a man or a woman. Now, I think we are violating the tradition now because many of our rabbis are not 
excluding the ones here, are not moral and ethical. I mean, they're in jail. They're all, you know. So that person is, if you hire someone like that, suddenly this is so brilliant. This person is so brilliant. I don't care if they're not such a nice person. Or, then I think you're violating the tradition. But as far as hiring them, it's not a change. So these are the kind of things. But I would only come to that, I think, with a understanding of feminism, what feminism has given us and inclusion. So orthodoxy, even modern orthodoxy, is not out to throw out any of the laws or change the laws. It's trying to understand the laws properly, and that takes a long time, and, and we progress in our understanding of the laws. Now the question is, what can a woman, according to halacha, how can she lead services, or what parts of the services? So that all also has to be re-examined. Um, so the outside world sometimes breaks down our assumptions, um, but orthodoxy is committed to a system, a method of staying within the law. And the exciting thing is, I think, is that there that moves and that changes. And we've seen huge changes. And I want to, uh, uh, Rav Shmuley used the term, uh, has used the term agitate. Push it. Shake it up. Don't throw it out. Shake it up and see what happens. So that, that would be, yes. Yes, thank you, Rabbi. We have two dear friends who are gay. You may know one of them, Steve Greenberg. Sure. The first yeah. Orthodox rabbi to come out. Mm -hmm. They're very close friends, he and his uh, partner. They lived in Cincinnati, oh, and the Orthodox synagogue would not allow them to go inside their building, would not allow them. Now, the only Orthodox institution that was uh, warm to them was Chabad. Mm -hmm. uh, I found that interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, Chabad has very strict beliefs in the Torah as a literal work and that being gay is an abomination. I mean, that's an interpretation. It, that, there's lots of things that can be interpreted. But my question to you as an Orthodox rabbi, uh, how can Orthodoxy <laughs> uh, handle this? And it bothers me that no one came to their support, even though they wrote you know, many articles about their experience. They're now in Boston. Mm -hmm. um, but how, how can you make this leap of accepting gays when you also think that they are violating Torah? Of course, we all violate Torah. I mean, it says we're stoned if we don't keep Shabbos. Well, right. <laughs> we're not. Right. Anyway. That's my comment question to you. Thank you. That's a great question. So the, the, the first level, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, Steve, and um, also they were at a shul in Boston that did accept them, uh, where we had a Musmach HaChovei Torah. Yona Berman was there, um, and they're good friends. Um, so I, like level one that you mentioned, it's like we're all sinners, and we all don't keep everything that the Torah says, and it's standard in Orthodox shuls that someone who is not Shomer Shabbat, who doesn't keep Shabbat, can be a member and get an aliyah and all that. Um, so, uh, and years ago, I think Shmuley Botech was talking about it, maybe 15, 20 years ago, that 
that's the first thing. Like, we got to get over, there's a homophobia that, you know, Shabbat, which is even stricter, that's fine. But this thing is different. Um, but I think we have to move to another level. And the first thing that I point out, uh, because, um, you know, if, if, in speaking to people, I've done conversions for same-sex couples, for their children that they've adopted. Um, and my synagogue in, in Chicago did accept them, uh, same-sex couples, as, as members, um, and as a family membership. Um, first thing I say, like, this is, goes back to your point, like, look in the Torah and look in the Talmud, the Talmud specifically, the rabbinic interpretation, and we're okay? We're holding? Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, um, yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, I get frustrated because it doesn't talk about marriage. It doesn't say that a man shall not marry another man. When the Torah wants to tell us not to marry someone, it says, Lo titchaten bam, chatuna, chasana. Don't marry them. The seven nations of Canaan. It says, do not marry them. It doesn't say that about a gay couple, a same-sex couple. It doesn't mention women at all in that context. But even for men, it talks about one uh, sexual act. And the Talmud, the oral interpretation of the rabbis, is very clear. You know, they, uh, they talk about what that sexual act is. They're very explicit. Um, and I think the point is, they're not telling people um, not to have, to find the partner that works for them. Um, and if they're gay, a, uh, a same-sex partner works for them. There's nowhere in the Tal Torah or Talmud that says that's forbidden. Now, there are some other places they pull from that talks about a ketubah or something. But basically, people, when people say the Torah, look at this verse in the Torah, it's talking, first of all, about one sexual act. So there's actually a rabbi in Israel who's very right-wing, uh, relative right-wing, he's a big advocate for the concept of chaver l'chaim, that if uh, someone is gay, they should find a lifetime friend. So he's, you know, he's not calling it a wife or a spouse or a husband, but he's still saying there's a lifetime friend and you should have a partnership with them and they should be accepted. Now, on the other hand, um, also in the sexual realm, uh, there's a lot of discussion about them. There's a lot of discussion about what kind of sexual acts are uh, prohibited and what might not be prohibited. And I like argued with uh, Rabbi Joel Roth. Rabbi Joel Roth uh, in the conservative movement, he's on the right of the conservative movement, he had a very strict interpretation. And you look in some sources, it might be maybe only that one sexual act. Rabbi Riskin, a few weeks ago, said that a very, in a very rabbinic way, said that when the Torah prohibits a certain uh, homosexual act, it's talking about people who are heterosexuals who are doing that. But if you're a homosexual, then it's not prohibited. Now, that's a little revolutionary, and he has to find sources for that. But there's conversation. Those are the kind of conversations that we have to have. So certainly at a very base level of acceptance and welcoming. Um, and, but then on the other level is really being honest with halacha. And I think that's, again, where the politics, you know, where, oh, well, gay and homosexuality, it's, it's the, the Torah forbids it and all that. Look at the Torah, look at the Talmud, look at the sources, and really study them carefully. 
Um, and if we do, we find there's a, it's a whole new world in some ways. So I think it's, it's a sensitive issue. I think that in some ways there's more progress made on the LGBTQ issue than on women's issues. Uh, even though there are women ra rabbis, rabbis, maharats, it's starting in orthodoxy. I think in some ways there's more movement on that issue. I think the women's issue, it's just hard men, you know, there are issues of power and all that. So, um, but we'll get there, we'll get there. As long as we believe in Torah and we believe in the system and we push it, I think we'll, we'll get to where God wants us to get to. Your number nine says lack of inspiration. Uh, I, I would almost call it lack of energy. Yeah. I've been to services in all three movements in the last six months. And the services seem so predictable. <laughs> and I know exactly what's going to happen next. I keep going. But the question is, will other people, will the next generation want to come? Uh, half the time we're bored. The services I liked the most were when I was in the USY. Yeah. As things were exciting and moving, and then they get, it gets kind of boring. I have seen some musical services, which I find inspiring. I think that's made a big difference. But where, how do you get back this energy? Uh, have you experienced, have you been able to energize your congregation? Mm, there you, you go. Like yeah. Great, that's a great question. Um, so, and, and um, it's on the spot on, um, I think that what we did in Anshishalam, I'll tell you, I don't know if we may, I think mean, we try to tighten up the services, I try to inject some meaning into it, explaining each aliyah, the Torah reading, all that, but I think the main thing that we did, with it, especially with an orthodoxy, I think you're, you're, you have a matbeah, you have a certain you know, Porsche, a coin, as it were, but certain services that you, words you have to say, like Suke de Zimra, like there's this whole introductory portion that's all Psalms, and it takes 25 minutes on Shabbat. And if you want to do it in a nice way, like sing it, then it takes 35 minutes and people get angry. So, um, so what I try to do, and I think we were successful, is give people a sense of, this is a community of, of people praying. So people came late, but people were part of that community and were into it, and, and it, it is a template for a community. And I'll tell you, like, I, um, I go to morning services every day, uh, but I don't believe it's obligatory by halakha to go to daven publicly every, in a tzibur, in a, in a shul every day. But I do that because... Um, I feel that's a community, that's being part of community. And so I was going to one that was just totally, no one said hello, no one said anything, there wasn't any coffee afterwards, they like kicked you out when you're done. And I stopped going to that one, now I walk 19 minutes, I could have walked seven minutes, I walked 19 minutes, to another one that just has, it's a, they say hello when you come in, they say we missed you, you haven't been there. There, there is, I don't drink, but there's, there's schmoozing afterwards. I think you have to set up a, um, the strength that we have is community. And I think that, yes, yeah, some movements have a lot more flexibility, reform, and we can bring in musical instruments. Um, there were some services that we worked hard, Friday night services, that you are able to inject energy. And I think that the schools, I mean, I go to my kid's school, I don't know, they're, they're, it's not energy. There's a lot of work to do. but. Parallel to that, and I think almost easier sometimes, 
is to let everyone that comes feel that they're beloved, that they're welcome, that they're part of something exciting that's happening. So it's only a partial answer. We're, we're Shmuley brought up this question in, on a listserv that we're on. I don't want to, you know, but uh, what? So um, the, the 20th, 20th century Jews oriented themselves around the trauma and glory of Israel and the Holocaust. And we've seen that that's faded from 21st century Jews. What do you see as sort of the new? Oh, trauma? I thought he was going to give the answer. Okay, but yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, you're still in the middle. Wait one second. Just yeah. no, no, I'm at the very end, but okay, just. Yeah, yeah. Struggling orthodoxy is now struggling with this idea of like this mass of words that we say every day. Can we vary it? Can we uh, take, say a little bit less and say a little bit more with kavana? Um, so with more intention, we're seeing. So it's something I think that we're we're just starting to deal with. But community, hopefully, the sense of community, I think, can maybe overcome some of the. Uh, the other stuff that you have as part of a tradition. Yes, I'm sorry, Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, yeah. So 20th century Jews oftentimes associated themselves around, or oriented around the trauma and glory, glory of the Holocaust and of Israel. And we see that for 21st century Jews, that doesn't really work so well. Um, those, those have faded in terms of being sort of sticking uh, mm. orientation points. And I wonder, what do you see as sort of the trauma and glory for 21st century Jews that kind of orients their identity? Um, and where is there sort of success in really building some of that energy around community in, in, in kind of a new life? Wow, that's a very challenging question. I, I, first point I would make, I think Israel, I'm not giving up on Israel. I'm an old-fashioned Zionist, and I really believe there's something about God wanting us to have a land that we're all connected to, whether it's Ahad Ha'am's idea of a cultural center, whether it's... Uh, where we all feel we belong as a nation, as a people. So I haven't given up. I think Israel is a still a potent force in, in bringing Jews, American Jews together and exciting American Jews. You know, if Israel is able to be a beacon of morality, and sometimes they are when we go to Haiti, and Israel's the first one to set up a hospital there, uh, and some of the innovations, even in Puerto Rico, Israel's working on things to uh, help them with their electricity. Um, so Yosef uh, Abramowitz goes to Rwanda to build solar panels uh, with, for, coming from Israel. So I haven't given up on it. I do think, I don't want to give up on Israel. I think that it is central to our people and, the, and that if we don't connect American Jews to Israel, it's kind of at our peril. Um, the... Uh, I, um, I wish American Jews were leading the way in immigration, uh, you know, immigration reform. I don't know. The, the second half, I just don't know what it is, and I'm a little, uh, you know, navoch. Um, I'm depressed about that, that we don't yet see, we don't yet see that, that sense of sacrifice, um, of activism that we even saw in the civil rights movement, Jews, not, not just 50 years ago, but even, you know, so... Uh, that that's a real that's a real challenge. I, I think that we have to look for that. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Rabbi. You've mentioned a couple of times uh, the need for for American Jews to be connected to Israel and how they're losing that connection. What do we have to do, and so on. But there's another side to the coin. There, there up, up until recently, 
we needed to support Israel. They needed us. Mm -hmm. Put, putting politics aside, mm -hmm. they needed us financially, they needed us for all kinds mm -hmm. of reasons. Now they don't need us. Right, right. We need them. Mm -hmm. When are they going to realize that they need to help us instead of fighting us, instead of ignoring us? I have grown children. Uh, they're the millennials, they're the, those that we talk about. And when they see uh, the situation in Puerto Rico, when they see the situation in Houston, or anywhere in the world for that matter, they're right there. Okay, but they don't feel any need to support Israel because Israel doesn't exhibit the desire to have our support or our children's support. Okay, I think everybody here can latch on to history, and that's all that we need to maintain that connection with Israel. It's not what our children have to do to be connected to Israel. I think it's more what Israel has to do to be connected to the diaspora. Great. So I um, apologize. Oh, no apology necessary. I, th I think we have to redefine Zionism. And I think in the, for the last uh, 100 years or so, uh, we, we thought of it as establishing a Jewish sovereign state in the Holy Land, let's say. Because um, we dismissed Uganda. We said it has to be in the Holy Land, but a Jewish sovereignty. Um, and I don't think that necessarily res resonates with the younger generation. And I want them to be connected to the Holy Land of Eretz Israel. Look, I believe we need a government that defends us. I know that Hamas and Hezbollah want to destroy Israel. And all the Arab countries, either they want to destroy us or they don't care about it. Um, I get that. Um, and it's necessary, but that's not what's going to resonate with American Jews. When we want them to be Zionists, is go to Israel and feel what it's like to have your Jewish land. Go take from the history. And Israel now, I lived in Israel in the 70s, and it was so dumpy. And Israel's gorgeous now. And, and you know, Rachov Yafo and the Shuk, uh, where all the young people are out till midnight or two in the morning on a Thursday night or a Saturday night. Um, I, so I don't want them, our younger Jews, and APEC does a great job. They bring thousands of young college students and rah-rah Israel, you know, the old Zionism supporting the state and the sovereignty. But I want them to, a new kind, it's go to love Israel because this is going to amaze, this is our land and it's an amazing land. And I think that kind of connection can work with the younger generation. So, no, I don't think Israel cares about America. You know, again, they really don't care that much about American Jews, and they're not gonna, we're not going to convince them. Um, and, but I think we, so in a sense, we have to reclaim Israel. We cannot let Netanyahu take the Kotel away from us. We have to reclaim it. We haven't done that. We should be sending a thousand people there to burst through and to you know, you know, get arrested and all that kind of, some of that's going on, but the Haredim, ultra-Orthodox can send, can get a thousand girls, high school girls to go down there and disrupt things. We have to reclaim Israel, but it's not the, we're not voting in Israel, we're not citizens, but we can't, we cannot let anyone, especially the state of Israel, take Israel away from us. I think that's our, our challenge. Reclaiming Israel. Yes? Just a piggyback comment onto that, and that last year, Ehud Barak was here, mm. and uh, one of his comments at the end of his talk, I don't know if it was the result of a question, 
but his comment was, Israel will be fine. The American Jew, Jewish community needs to repair itself. And so he was talking in terms of finances and things like that, mm -hmm. but he went a lot deeper than that. And I mean, so he was straight from the source, he was talking about how we needed to do more, but they didn't need us. So they, they definitely feel they don't need us. Um, and I guess they'll get along. But I do think we have a tremendous amount to contribute to Israel. They might not know it, but, and this maybe answers your question also, or addresses your question. They need American ideology. They need the American spirit. They need the American Jewish spirit. So there's a tremendous amount we can give to Israel. Just like I think Israelis, don't think they need Palestinians or Arabs, and I think they do need Palestine. They need some of that, some of a, what Palestinians have to offer the state of Israel as well, what Bedouins do, what Druze do, what I think immigrants from Africa have to offer. So the Israelis don't want any of that, and they don't think they need it. I think it will be very helpful for them. I think to really be the Jewish state, the Jewish holy land, I think they need it. So. It's our job, you know, don't let them, uh, don't, you know, fine, they don't, we're not gonna convince them. We gotta go there anyway, and we gotta do whatever we can, and we gotta take back the Kotel. I, I used to work in Silicon Valley, and we had a lot of uh, people in Israel and shared companies, and one of the, uh, the people that I worked with, he knew I was Jewish, I, you know, I know he's Israeli, and Shabbat was coming up, I, I, you know, I talked to him about Passover, whatever, and it was like, eh, I don't need that. I live in Israel. I'm, <laughs> I know, I'm right. you know, the fish in the water. And then he became an expatriate and went to England. And we talked, and he said, oh, my God, Rita, I'm doing Shabbat with my yeah, kids. Yeah. I'm the bonfire. I made all these holidays that I never even thought about. I do now. He says, because, because when you're in Israel, you forget that, mm -hmm. that what it means to be a Jew and what it means to be observant. And a lot of, I have, I have uh, cousins-in-law who feel like they're real secular. And I said, so you're not getting your son a, a Greek or a law? Oh! <laughs> right, <laughs> right, 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 right. I don't right. want to associate with the Orthodox rabbinate. And I think a lot of, a lot of uh, Israelis are pretty secular. And they love their country. <coughs> mm -hmm. But, Right, it's, it's interesting. I think it's a great point you're making. The, the Israelis are kind of secular but traditional at the same time. Like you said, a bris in general, they do. Um, and, you know, Friday nights, they're together with their family. They might not do it, especially in Israel. Um, so first of the, I want to first say that it's very sad sometimes that Israelis don't realize. They realize only too late when they're living in America. These things don't happen automatically. You have to make it happen. Um, but the, um, but yes, the lights. But the second, the, the other point is that um, that's one of the things we have to contribute to uh, to Israelis. Um, there was uh, one of the uh, um, oh, I forgot his name, but uh, lead, he was actually the leader of Hillel uh, for a little while after Richard Joel. Um, so he um, he said that the reform. He brings together reformed Jews and Israelis, and, and 
we, before Wayne Firestone. <laughs> so, what's that? No, before Arrow, before, before, yeah. Maybe just for three years, but very good. Good guess. Um, so, um, so Avram Infeld, sorry, Avram Infeld. So, uh, and he said that you get the Israelis, like, they're so Jewish in some ways, and then the Reform just says, say, let's do the birkat, you know, after eating, let's do the birkat, because in camp, they learn to do the birkat, and the Israelis don't know what they're talking about. So, you know, as with many things, we think, I can do it on my own, I don't need your help, you know, and they do need our help, and they do need our contributions, and they don't realize it, so, and... We need the land. We need the, I think Judaism needs the connection to Israel. So, um, you know, it, it's sad when people don't realize what they need. But um, sometimes you, uh, again, I don't want to give up on Israel. I, it's not fair that a government or an attitude or anything like that takes it away from us. Maybe what we need to do, we have, uh, we have uh, the college kids going to Israel. Mm -hmm. Yes, so one of our graduates, uh, Rav Amitai Freeman, wants to do a reverse birthright. So there's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I have a question for you. It's in Israel. I have several nieces that live in Israel. Um, two of them in particular um, do not want to get married through the Rabbanu. Mm. And they are actually married. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they are not officially mm -hmm, married. Mm -hmm. They have kids. They live with their spouses for many years. Uh, I think at this point they kind of register as domestic partners or whatever mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the terminology is called. What's going to happen with that whole generation? There is a lot of them that have children. Are they going to be at some point considered manzerim uh, and won't be able to live in Israel and get married in Israel and all of that kind of stuff? No, so luckily in Jewish law, uh, they, a child out of wedlock is not a mamzer, is not a bastard child. Um, and so it's only adultery that would lead to that. Um, so this, you know, being married or not being married doesn't make any difference for the children. So like the, it's the good news and the bad news. The good news is that in Israel, they don't care about the rabbanut. It doesn't usually affect their lives. You know, some people want to get married. The uncle wants them to get married with the rabbanut, so sometimes they'll do that. But... Half the weddings are not. They're in Cyprus. They're like this. Um, and so the Rabbanut doesn't have this power over people. Um, on, but on the other hand, it is very sad. Uh, uh, friend Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove has just called for the dismantling of the Rabbanut. I'm, uh, you know, I'm a free market person. I would love to see it dismantled. I don't think, I think maybe Rav Cook, some of the great chief rabbis were inspiring uh, it's a terrible system now. Um, but there are rabbis who do weddings in Israel outside of the Rabbanut. They're not recognized. They're not recognized. And that's something that's, I, I can't really, I'm not living there. So I don't know why people get, obviously I'm glad that your relatives, uh, nieces, are not hung up on that. But so many people get hung up. Will I be recognized? Will I be recognized by the Rabbanut? But I'm not living there. I can't judge them for that. But um, that is a power, that is a pull they have over people. No, so it's actually Mudalat Sibor. There are a lot, there's a, there's a, a state legal position um, where the status that they have that is basically equivalent to being married as far as taxes are concerned and other things. So it doesn't really have 
uh, legal um, uh, you know, teeth n not being recognized by the Rabbanut, because you'll be recognized as a couple, even if you're not recognized as, as being married. Um, so, you know, again, Israel, that's why Israel is like low on their priorities. I'm, I'm in a group uh, for American Jewish Committee, the JREC, uh, Jewish Religious Equality Coalition, and we're always we're going to Israel, why don't you care? And everyone hates the Rabbanut, they're not everyone, but, you know, the ultra-Orthodox, they can't stand the Rabbanut, who are these losers? And everyone else doesn't like the Rabbanut, but it's, you know, it's a patronage system that's around, uh, and... Um, but Israelis who don't like it, it's very, it's number 10 on their list of priorities of their problems. So, um, you know, but I think, you know, it goes back to this idea that for American Jews, we take rabbis kind of, I'm glad, we take rabbis seriously. And when a rabbi says something, or, or in a religious party, someone says that reform Jews are like dogs or something, it's it painful and it distances us. And we have to find a way not being citizens of the state of Israel, but we're still Jews and Eretz Israel is ours. And so how do we, um, how do we get in there um, around the government in a sense? Beautiful, so yeah, let's take one more last question. Thank you. It's always, remember Columbo, it's always the last question that, you know. No, this is gonna be an easy one. <laughs> uh, you said under number nine, can we compete with more exciting religious experiences? Yes. So which would those be? So, you know, it's funny, uh, when we were, you know, going through the, it was Hare Krishna, then it was the Buddhists, and then it was yoga, and then it's, I don't know. Um, and I think um, maybe it's not as, I mean, in, you know, in the 80s, it was like everyone's afraid their kid's going to become a Hare Krishna, and their kid's going to be a Buddhist. And, uh, but I do think, but what I would say is that uh, Friday night going out, uh, you know, sports, uh, what is it, going with friends, uh, you know, all those other things. So it's not necessarily, um, oh, more, I did put more exciting religious experiences. Um, you know, I'm not faced, it's a good point. I think it's a good, other experiences, I would say. Kiru, uh, right, right. So maybe the, right. So this is a Rav, Rav Shmuley saying how modern orthodoxy versus ultra-orthodoxy and ultra-orthodoxy on campus is so compelling sometimes it's exactly, and modern orthodoxy, some of these are like, yeah, it's parv, it's not, you know, how do we make modern orthodoxy feel authentic? And really, I think that's actually, that's the point, so because this social orthodox doesn't feel authentic. And we think that to be a good Jew, an authentic Jew, you have to have a big black hat and a big beard, you know, and a big beard, or you have to be, uh, you know, barefoot in the kitchen or whatever it is, um, whereas, we want to show that a modern Orthodox life uh, is everyone, the, boy, the man's in the kitchen, the woman's in the kitchen, everyone, you know, the modern Orthodox life is compelling. And when it's just that, well, we do it because we do it, then the ultra-Orthodox is going to look more compelling or going out with friends is going to look more compelling. So I think that's, that, that, that's a problem. We can do it. I think it's exciting, um, but, but it's, it's somehow... Um, it's a challenge. Somehow it's a real challenge because it's easier just to fall into a rote. And it's been a challenge, by the way, for centuries. Uh, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, Mesilat Yisharim, writes about it that people are just doing mitzvot by rote. So it's been a challenge for centuries, but it's a particular challenge 
in the modern Orthodox world, the Haredi world, I mean, the real Lakewood, they're, they're very committed and they're spending all their time learning and, and the women are trying to support their, raise all their kids and support their husbands. There's a lot of commitment there. Maybe that's the point. Is there enough commitment and sacrifice uh, that we, we have. I mean, I want to say, you know, Rav Shmuley, he's up 24 hours a day. I get emails from him at uh, you know, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., uh, and, uh, and even more. It's not just because of the difference in time zones. And you know, so we have our leaders that are really sacrificing, giving their kidneys and giving their you know, kishkas, you know, li literally. Um, do we have enough of them? And are, are people really uh, doing that? And that's what's inspiring. Just going through it by rote, as beautiful as it is, sometimes gets really uninspiring. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.